between October of 2014 and December of 2015. Now, early September also saw a physician practice group and chair of its Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery violating the False Claims Act. Here, the United States intervened on this case with goings-on of over two years and alleges that the defendants knowingly submitted hundreds of materially false claims for payment to Medicare, Medicaid, and other government health benefit programs over the past six years. Now, the United States complaint alleges that the chair of the cardiothoracic department regularly performed as many as three complex surgical procedures at the same time, failing to participate in all of the key and critical portions of his surgeries, and forcing his patients to endure hours of medically unnecessary anesthesia time as he moved between operating rooms and attended to other patients or other matters. And according to the United States complaint, these practices violate the statutes and regulations governing the defendants, including those that prohibit teaching physicians, like himself as a department chair, from performing and billing the United States for concurrent surgeries. Now, of significance, the United States complaint also alleges that the department chair's practices violated the standard of care and the patient's trust and heightened the risk of serious complications. Mid-September saw a couple of disturbing cases, in my opinion, of elder abuse in the states of Massachusetts and Florida. Now, first in Massachusetts, a certified nursing assistant, a CNA, has been charged with sexually assaulting two elderly female nursing home patients. He was recently arranged for one of those cases with charges of two counts of indecent assault and battery upon an elder. The judge here released him on personal recognizance with the following conditions. He cannot work nor volunteer as a CNA during this case. No work or volunteering in nursing homes or rest homes or in the healthcare field. He also cannot work nor volunteer with anyone over the age of 60 he also cannot work or volunteer with disabled individuals, and he also cannot leave the state without permission from the court. He is due back in Superior Court on October 13th in Massachusetts for the pretrial conference. Now, he still awaits arraignment for the second case involving his sexual assault of an, elder, of an elderly nursing home resident. Excuse me, his alleged sexual assault of an elderly nursing home resident. Now, let's move on to the second disturbing case in Florida. Here, a woman was arrested for exploiting more than $12,000 from a disabled senior. Here, a Medicaid fraud control unit, a Mifuku investigation, found that the woman entrusted as the disabled senior's power of attorney, she allegedly stole more than $12,000 from the elderly victim for personal benefit. Now, the attorney general here, said, quote, acting as a trusted advocate, this defendant abused her authority and relationship with the victim in order to gain access to personal and financial information. Not only was the money stolen, but the victim's health care bills were neglected. I will continue to do everything within the power of my office to stop Medicaid fraud and criminals preying on Florida seniors, end quote. And according to the investigation, 
This woman obtained a power of attorney for the elderly victim and abused this authority by gaining access once again to the victim's personal bank account and transferred more than $12,000 to her personal account. A cashier's check was then used to pay court costs in an unrelated matter, all while leaving the victim's health care expenses unpaid. These criminal actions prevented the victim from fulfilling financial obligations at the victim's residency and did not even allow the victim to receive a proper burial after passing. Now, she faces one count of exploitation of an elderly person, a second-degree felony, right? If convicted, she faces up to 15 years in prison and up to a $10,000 fine in addition to repayment of restitution. And mid-September also saw a New York ophthalmologist pleading guilty to seven years of healthcare fraud schemes, as well as to his defrauding the Small Business Administration, the SBA program intended to help small businesses during the COVID-19 pandemic. So between 2010 and 2017, the ophthalmologist allegedly engaged in widespread healthcare fraud by consistently upcoding similar, lower-paying surgical procedures and examinations as complex, higher-paying major operations in fraudulent billings he submitted to Medicare, private insurance companies, and his patients. As a result, he fraudulently obtained at least $3.6 million in payments for procedures he did not perform. As a part of the scheme, he routinely falsified his patients' medical records he authored fictitious templated operative reports that matched the complex operations he billed rather than the different minor procedures he actually performed. Now, he also pressured his employees in the practice to engage in the scheme, and then he threatened the livelihood of those employees who refused to comply. He also caused his patients to pay thousands of dollars out of pocket for fraudulently billed charges. He also initiated debt collection proceedings on his patients when they did not pay the full amounts of those false charges. Now, for example, the ophthalmologist and others at the practice routinely treated patients for an excision of a chalazion, which is a small bump on the eyelid, typically removed in less than 15 minutes. Now, an excision of a chalazion, when billed truthfully under its associated CPT code, paid the practice approximately $200 on average from patients as well as insurance programs. However, he systematically billed an excision of a chalazion and other similar superficial eyelid procedures as if he had performed an orbitotomy together with a conjectivoplasty which are complex surgeries into the orbit of the eye, often to remove an orbital tumor together with grafting to close the resulting wound. Now, these types, of these types of procedures typically take an hour or more to perform. And because these are substantial surgeries as billed, they paid the practice approximately $1,400 on average from a combination of insurance and patient out-of-pocket payments. He also upcoded certain superficial procedures as an excision and repair of an eyelid, which is again a type of higher paying eyelid surgery involving the reconstruction and removal of certain lesions other than chalazia. 
Now, during this time parameter, again, right, of 2010 through 2017, he built less than 40 calasia under the billing code designated for excision of calasian, while billing over 1,400 orbitotomies, as well as over 700 bundled conjunctivoplasties, and over 1,600 excisions and repairs of eyelid surgeries, all of these he claimed to have personally performed. The scheme involved numerous other CPT codes for, for procedures and examinations not performed and were, and were rather upcoded and resulted in at least $3.6 million in reimbursement. Then, during some time around April of 2020, this same ophthalmologist applied to the SBA and Bank One, a federally insured institution, for over $630,000 in government-guaranteed loans through the SBA's Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP program. Now, to substantiate each loan, however, he submitted the exact same underlying payroll expense report showing the same employees and payroll costs. And on both applications, he falsely answered that he was not facing any pending criminal charges and electronically placed his initials directly under his no response. So he also falsified, right? He falsely certified, among other things, that his business would not receive another PPP loan until the end of the year. And after obtaining approval from Bank One and the SBA through his fraudulent misrepresentations, he executed loan notes for those two loans. Now, with these new monies he received, he used the business checking account into which these funds were deposited to pay business and personal expenses, including by allegedly making country club payments within days of receiving the first loan. And mid-September also saw a Florida cardiologist who paid $6.75 million to resolve allegations that he violated the False Claims Act by performing medically unnecessary ablations and vein stent procedures. The settlement resolves allegations that from January 1st of 2013 through December 31st of 2019, the cardiologist knowingly submitted false claims to federal health care programs for medically unnecessary ablations and vein stent procedures. The government alleged that he performed those ablations and stent procedures on veins that did not qualify for treatment under accepted standards of medical practice. Additionally, the government alleged that he made misrepresentations in patient medical records to justify the procedures, including overstating the degree of reflux and diameter of veins, and falsely documenting patient symptoms. The United States also alleged that in many instances, the ablations were performed either exclusively or primarily by one or more ultrasound technicians outside of their scope of practice. There were, of course, many, many of the usual suspects as well this month, like opioids distributors, kickbacks, bribery schemes, fraudulent DME billings, and money laundering. But I'd like to highlight two blockbuster cases that I find most interesting. Now, first, let's focus on the massive national case of healthcare fraud enforcement actions resulting in over $1.4 billion in alleged losses. This is huge, right? 
the Department of Justice announced criminal charges against 138 defendants, including 42 doctors, nurses, and other licensed medical professionals in 31 federal districts across the U.S. for their alleged participation in various healthcare fraud schemes. Now, the charges target approximately $1.1 billion in fraud committed using telemedicine, which again is the use of telecommunications technology to provide healthcare services remotely, which we need desperately during this past year of COVID-19, right? Now, $29 million in COVID-19 healthcare fraud, $133 million connected to substance abuse treatment facilities, or sober homes, as well as $160 million, which was connected to other healthcare fraud and illegal opioids distribution schemes across the country. Now, the telemedicine cases resulted in the largest amount of alleged fraud loss charged in connection with the cases announced to date. Again, over $1.1 billion in allegedly false and fraudulent claims submitted by more than 43 criminal defendants in 11 judicial districts, all again related to schemes involving telemedicine. And according to court documents, certain defendant telemedicine executives allegedly paid doctors and nurse practitioners to order unnecessary durable medical equipment, that's our DME, genetic and other diagnostic testing, and pain medications, either without any patient interaction or with only a brief telephonic conversation with patients they had never met nor had ever seen. Now, durable medical equipment companies, genetic testing laboratories, and pharmacies then purchased those orders in exchange for illegal kickbacks and bribes and submitted over $1.1 billion in false and fraudulent claims to Medicare and other government insurers. In some instances, medical professionals billed Medicare for sham telehealth consultations that did not occur as represented. The proceeds of this scheme were spent on various luxury items, which included vehicles, yachts, and real estate. The COVID-19 cases involved nine defendants in the cases who are alleged to have engaged in various healthcare fraud schemes designed to exploit the COVID-19 pandemic which resulted in the submission of over $29 million in false billings. In one type of scheme, defendants are alleged to have exploited policies that were put in place by the CMS to enable increased access to care during the COVID-19 pandemic, such as expanded telehealth regulations and rules. Defendants allegedly misused patient information to submit claims to Medicare for unrelated medically unnecessary and expensive laboratory tests, including genetic cancer testings. The law enforcement action also includes criminal charges against five defendants who allegedly engaged in the, mis in the misuse of provider relief fund monies for the PRF fund. Now, the provider relief fund is a part of the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Securities Act. That's our CARES Act which was a federal law enacted back on March 2020 and designed to provide the needed medical care to our Americans suffering from COVID-19. The defendants allegedly used the monies for their own personal expenses, including for gambling at a Las Vegas casino, paying for luxury cars at dealerships. Now for the sober home cases, these were announced on 
the one-year anniversary of the first-ever National Sober Homes Initiative in 2020. These are the cases which included charges against more than a dozen criminal defendants in connection with more than $845 million of allegedly false and fraudulent claims for tests and treatments for those vulnerable patients seeking treatment for drug and or alcohol addiction. The over $133 million in false and fraudulent claims that are additionally alleged in cases announced reflect the continued effort by the National Rapid Response Strike Force, as well as the healthcare fraud units in Los Angeles's Strike Force, with the participation of the United States Attorney's Offices for the Central District of California, as well as the Southern District of Florida, to prosecute those individuals who participated in illegal kickbacks and bribery schemes involving the referral of patients to substance abuse treatment facilities, those patients could be subjected to medically unnecessary drug testing, often billing thousands of dollars for a single test and, and those therapy sessions that frequently were not even provided, and which, again, also resulted in millions of dollars of false and fraudulent claims being submitted to private insurers as well. The second blockbuster case digs into state specifics, one state in particular, Florida. This case involves national health care fraud enforcements, which resulted in charges of over $308 million in intended loss against 52 defendants in the Southern District of Florida. The federal charges filed in South Florida cover a wide range of schemes from novel crimes like theft of COVID-19 personal protective equipment, PPE, as well as fraud connected to substance abuse treatment facilities or sober homes, to more of my usual suspects like healthcare fraud involving durable medical equipment suppliers, home health, pharmacies, payment of kickbacks, money laundering, and so much more. Now, over $106 million of the billed amount of $308 million was in fact paid. So for the COVID-19 fraud in South Florida, there was a 30-year-old Miami resident who was charged by indictment with conspiracy to steal medical products as well as the transportation of those stolen goods. He is specifically charged with stealing personal protective equipment, PPE, from a local hospital and then reselling it at an inflated price. Now, according to indictment details, he worked in the supplies department of a local hospital. From April through November of 2020, he allegedly stole N95 masks as well as other medical supplies from his workplace and then sold them to various purchasers. Now, among other items, he sold $55,000 worth of stolen N95 masks to a purchaser located in California. And as a result of these thefts, during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, in fact, the local hospital where he worked then did not have the supplies needed for their nurses, their doctors, their staff, and their patients. And at one point, they were even down to only a three-day supply of N95 masks. Now, as for the sober homes fraud in South Florida, there were two locals in the West Palm Beach area who were charged with conspiracy to commit $128 million of healthcare fraud. Now, according to information, the two owned and operated a substance abuse treatment center as well as a sober home 
and detox facilities. They also had ownership interest in several drug testing laboratories. Now, it's alleged that they hired a medical director for the treatment center who signed standing orders for medically unnecessary and expensive drug testing in exchange for patient referrals. The medical director then billed the patient's insurance plans for duplicative, excessive, non-rendered, and or medically unnecessary treatment and testing. The pair then used the signed standing orders to authorize medically unnecessary drug testing at laboratories in which they had an ownership interest, thereby allowing them to receive percentages of all claims reimbursements for those tests. Now, it's also alleged that they paid kickbacks and bribes in the form of free or reduced rent, access to controlled substances provided by the medical directors, and other benefits to individuals who agreed to live at their sober home, attend treatment at the treatment center, and submit to drug testing so that the pair could bill these services to the residents' insurance plans. Now, in regard to this blockbuster case, special agent in charge at the FBI there says, quote, South Florida is ground zero for health care fraud. As such, the FBI and its partners devote vast resources to investigate, catch, and prosecute those committing this fraud. The victims are U.S. taxpayers, you and me. Our message to those who commit health care fraud and steal from U.S. taxpayers is clear. You will be caught and you will be punished, end quote. Wow. So incredible, right? So many fraud, waste, and abuse cases this month of September. I hope I highlighted some of the best, most egregious ones. I was simply captivated by everything I was reading. So I hope you find these to be truly enlightening. And hopefully you can also take a deeper look into these reports from month to month. Um, It's one of my favorite episodes that I conduct at the last Wednesday of each and every month. So I really do try my best to highlight those cases that I find most interesting. So many of these cases are similar that I have worked on before or I'm currently working on in my auditing and compliance work today. I always try my best to provide solid guidance and advice to providers to be mindful of correct coding and compliant billing practices to avoid joining these very serious, these very public and very egregious outcomes. So I always believe these types of fraud, waste, and abuse cases are most helpful. Please take a deeper look into these reports and see how they may affect you, your provider, your facility. Start self-auditing your service claims and coordinating documentation to ensure you are meeting compliance. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. So in today's new back to basics compliance tip, I wanted to focus on modifier 59. I can't believe I've not gone over this hot topic before, but you know what? I'm here to get you back to basics and understanding how Modifier 59 can be used compliantly. So let's start with some of the no-nos. I know there still continues to be widespread confusion and misunderstanding with how to use Modifier 59 correctly to use it compliantly in the documentation I have seen 
over the years. So did you know it's been on the OIG work plans off and on since November of 2005? Its title, even back then, was pretty catchy, in my opinion. It's quoted, use of modifier 59 to bypass Medicare's National Correct Coding Initiative edits, end quote. Now, I know I've seen recent OIG reports from 2017 as well. Like in a March 2017 audit report, the OIG cited hospitals often used modifier 59 incorrectly when billing for outpatient right heart catheterizations with their heart biopsies. Now, they found that in 92 out of 100 claims sampled, hospitals abused their appendage of modifier 59. Their medical records did not support its use. Another example from November of 2017 involves a hospital in Maine that falsely used modifier 59 to receive payment for multiple same-day urinalysis drug screening tests that did not arise from separate medically necessary encounters with the same patients on the same days. Now, the False Claims Act was triggered in this case, and the hospital did not only settle allegations, but it also acknowledged its overbilling of urinalysis drug screening tests, and they enhanced their internal compliance program as a part of settlement. So by the very basic definition, let's start right from scratch. The very beginning, modifier 59, again, is defined in the very front cover, the, the front page of that CPT cover, very short snippet of a definition. Quote, distinct procedural service. But again, as I've mentioned in a recent Back to Basics on CPT appendices, you can find even greater detail in Appendix A. And this is what I want to talk about. Appendix A gives a better definition, a more expansive definition of modifier 59. It states, quote, under certain circumstances, it may be necessary to indicate that a procedure or service was distinct or independent from other non-ENM services performed on the same day. Modifier 59 is used to identify procedures and services other than ENM services that are not normally reported together, but are appropriate under the circumstances. Documentation must support a different session, different procedure or surgery, different site or different organ system, separate incision or excision, separate lesion or separate injury, not ordinarily encountered or performed on the same day by the same individual. However, when another already established modifier is appropriate, it should be used rather than modifier 59. Only if no more descriptive modifier is available and the use of modifier 59 best explains the circumstances should modifier 59 be used. End quote. Now, I also have a list of 10 really good basic facts to hopefully help you support your understanding, as well as how to document for the appendage of modifier 59 appropriately. So my first fact, modifier 59 is applicable to the CPT code categories in surgery, radiology, 
pathology and laboratory, and medicine. Those are the only places that you should be using Modifier 59 are in those CPT categories. Then my second basic fact, you must verify your NCCI edits, which are specifically your procedure to procedure edits before submitting Modifier 59 to prevent unbundling. So tip number one, there are code pairs in the procedure to procedure edits with the number zero that cannot be submitted separately for reimbursement. Code pairs identified with the number one can be submitted separately for reimbursement. Code pairs identified with the number nine are not subject to NCCI edits and no modifier is required. Then my second tip there, it's the second CPT code in the procedure to procedure edits that defines a subset of work performed in the first CPT code. And then finally, tip number three there, the CMS manual system allows modifier 59 on both column one or column two codes as applicable. And my third fact involves common uses of modifier 59. Now, common uses for modifier 59 is for surgical procedures, non-surgical therapeutic procedures, or for diagnostic procedures performed at different anatomic sites not ordinarily performed or encountered on the same day and cannot be described by one of the more specific anatomic modifiers such as RT, LT, E1 through E4, FA, F1 through F9, TA, T1 through T9, LC, LD, RC, LM, or RI. My fourth fact, from a March 2nd, 2020, Medicare MLN Matters was revised in its issue titled SE1418. Here, they highlight four additional modifiers that were effective since January 1st of 2015. So I dig in on my fact five through 10. So my fact five is per that MLN Matters issue, that same issue, hospitals and independent physician practices are instructed to make sure that their billing staff is aware of the proper use of modifiers 59 and the four new X modifiers in XE, XS, XP, and XU. So fact number six, modifiers XE, XS, XP, and XU were in fact developed to provide greater reporting specificity in situations where modifier 59 was previously reported. And here's another pro tip from me. I in fact think these modifiers, these X modifiers are sorely underused. And if we start using them a bit more, I believe we can help curb the abuse, misuse, and misunderstanding of modifier 59. Fact number seven, by definition, modifier XE is a separate encounter, a service that is distinct because it occurred during a separate encounter. It should only be used to describe separate encounters on the same date of service. Fact number eight, by definition, modifier XS is a separate structure, a service that is distinct because it was performed on a separate organ separate structure. My fact number nine, by definition, modifier XP is a separate practitioner, a service that is distinct 
because it was performed by a different practitioner. And finally, my fact number 10, by definition, modifier XU is an unusual non-overlapping service, the use of a service that is distinct because it does not overlap usual components of the main service. Wow. So there's simply so much that a certified coding professional has to understand when it comes to the compliant appendage of modifier 59. And I hope my 10 facts here will help you better recognize the definition and appropriate use of modifier 59 and perhaps start using those X modifiers as well. I hope you find these back to basics helpful helpful to decrease these volumes of fraud, waste, and abuse errors that we've been seeing for years now. These back to basics will hopefully remind you that there's much more detailed information available at our fingertips. These details help us in being mindful for all of our coding capture, ensuring that we truly utilize all of these resources that we've had available to us for all this time. We want to avoid similar situations that may cause future overpayments for our providers. Our end game, of course, is to ensure that our provider's clinical documentation is capturing complete accuracy of the patient's medical condition so that we can provide accurate and complete coding abstraction. So a better, smarter approach is one that's proactive and starts by painting a clear, rich, and vibrant medical picture the first time so your certified medical coder can then abstract codes with accuracy. And finally, in this week's inspiring quote in Spark is from our former first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. It is better to light one small candle than to curse the darkness. Absolutely true, right? I think this is a perfect quote that reminds us, inspires us on the importance of illumination. Her deeper nuance here is rather profound. When we are feeling lost in our own darkness, lost with where our life has gone, we can find some hope, some meaning once again by igniting a small spark, a small light in another. By giving of oneself, in this small way, this allows us to slowly be set free from the darkness we see within ourselves. That darkness, in fact, dissipates when we light a spark within another. We can remember Eleanor Roosevelt's wise words on illumination to ourselves to shine on once again. I am happy Eleanor Roosevelt's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. Please go out and make this a great day and incredible week for yourselves. Aim a little higher, do a little more, and give back in any way you can in 2021. There's so much each one of us can do. As always, I appreciate you diving into today with me. And if you want more information from me, go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please continue staying safe and healthy, practice safety for one and all during our collective seemingly never ever ending life and times of coronavirus. Thank you so much for listening in on today's episode and I hope every week with me 
brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday. Thank <laughs> you.